some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author. And in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Hundreds of people had gathered at the base of the burning building in New York City to gawk skyward at the flames and smoke pouring from the 8th and ninth floors. What they saw was horrifying. Dozens of people were pressed against the windows, frantically screaming to the people below. Fire, they screamed. Get help. The people on the street could see that the flames were growing. The people up above could sense there was no way out. So they started to jump. Most went alone, but some held hands. In one case, a man picked up three of the women near him, one by one, and held them elegantly out the window in a sort of dancer's pose before letting go. The last was his sweetheart, so they embraced and kissed goodbye, and after a broken body lay at rest on the sidewalk, the man jumped to join her. The date was March 25, 1911. The workplace fire would ultimately kill 146 people and injure nearly seven dozen more, making it the deadliest industrial disaster in the history of the city and one of the worst in U.S. history. The blaze would also lead to manslaughter charges against the company's bosses and to 38 new laws regulating labor. More than that, It would highlight the shoddy treatment workers endured from their bosses in a way we'd never seen before in America. And that issue is something we still fight about to this day. Rose Rosenfeld had been born in Austria in a small town north of Vienna. Her family was pretty well off thanks to her dad's importing-exporting business. Work drew him to New York for a visit and he fell in love with the city, sparking the family to immigrate in 1909. They sailed on the Mauritania, which at the time was the world's largest ship. In America, Rose's father dedicated himself to Jewish studies, leaving her mother to run the business. Rose spoke English and was eager to be self-sufficient, so she got a job with the Triangle Shirtwaist Company. Most of her coworkers came from quite different backgrounds from a CNN documentary. The Triangle Shirtwaist Company was a thriving ladies' apparel firm crammed with young, low-paid immigrant workers who made the popular women's blouses that buttoned down to the waist. It's funny how language evolves. I've never heard anyone refer to a shirtwaist before in my life. But in the early 1900s, it was a word used to describe one of the most commonplace articles of clothing we know. It's just that now we call them blouses. The mass production of clothing was a relatively new phenomenon then. Sewing machines had been around more than 100 years, but it wasn't until 1889 that Isaac Singer invented the first practical electric sewing machine, and it'd be 1905 before those were inexpensive enough to be in wide usage. Once they were, the clothing industry radically changed. 
Instead of laboring over handmade garb, women could buy ready-made clothes for their families. And that's not to say that making the shirts wasn't still hard labor, but that labor was done by workers in factories rather than wives at home. Shirtwaists were button-down shirts modeled after menswear that had emerged in the 1860s as an alternative to bodice and skirt ensembles that women had worn up until then. It sounds so simple today, but these shirts were a huge deal in the early 1900s because the shirts could be mass-produced and sold for reasonable prices. Pretty much every woman could manage to buy one meaning that you couldn't tell just by looking at someone whether she was rich or poor. It was like a uniform, white blouse on top, tucked neatly into a dark skirt. It blurred the lines, leveled the playing fields. This is Don Wiener, whose grandmother worked at Triangle. For the first time, women were first going to work in offices. So they would have kind of a business garb. And the business garb was these shirtwaists and then uh, long skirts and so on. Naturally, business reacted to try to supply the big demand for these shirtwaists. If you look closely enough, you could see differences in material and quality. And shirts might cost as little as a quarter or as much as $7, which is between about $7 and $200 in today's money. The cheaper ones were often made by workers in deplorable conditions. There were few regulations at the time. Sometimes the work was done by women crammed into a room of a tenement, a rundown building housing multiple families. Tenements came about to deal with a huge influx of immigrants at the turn of the century. The Lower East Side at the time, they were tenements, and the people from there were poor immigrants. The majority of them were unable to read and write, and the idea of getting jobs was something that was extremely difficult, so everybody in the family worked. So a poor worker would wake up in a tenement where she lived, then walk to a tenement that had been makeshifted into a workplace of sorts. That usually meant that during the day, she'd be sharing bathrooms with not just her co-workers, but also the people who lived in the building who had no say in whether one of their neighbors used his room for a sweatshop or not. Basically, these so-called factories were held in the equivalent of a dank motel room. Some didn't even have windows to the outdoors. The air was stale and dusty. Fires were downright commonplace. These were legit sweatshops with workers being paid garbage for toiling long, miserable hours. A lot of times, these workers would get their pay only to realize it was a fraction of what they'd expected because bosses docked them for thread used or sewing machine maintenance. And without legal recourse, the workers largely just swallowed the bullshit they were served. From a Geographics documentary. Foreman hounded the workers relentlessly, firing or fining workers who were caught talking or who made mistakes while assembling a garment. The factory floor was dimly lit and poorly ventilated, causing eye strain and breathing problems. What's interesting is that the Triangle Shirtwaist Company wasn't like those sweatshops. In fact, the two men who headed the company, Isaac Harris and Max Blank, had worked in those types of conditions and set out to make a better one for workers when they saved enough money to launch their own company. The Triangle Factory spanned three whole floors in Lower Manhattan's Ash Building, named after its original owner, Joseph J. Ash. 
When it was built in 1900-1901, the iron and steel structure had been heralded for its fireproof rooms. Sweatshops might burn easily, but this was a state-of-the-art building. Iron and steel don't readily burn. As such, it attracted several garment makers as tenants. The Triangle Factory had started in a smaller setting, but gradually grew and grew until it employed more than 500 workers, mostly Italian and Jewish immigrant women and girls, though men worked there too. The most prized job was as a cutter, someone who would slice through stacks of cloth using electric blades. Those fabric fragments would then be pieced into a shirt. A good cutter was not only skilled, but prized, because he could keep wasted cloth to a bare minimum. The less cloth wasted, the more profits retained. Triangle owners Blank and Harris had a lot in common. They had both been born in Russia and immigrated to the U.S. in the 1890s. The two met in their 20s in New York City. After working for meager pay in the garment industry for about a decade, they joined forces. It proved a formidable partnership. Harris was skilled as a garment maker, but Blank's forte was business sense. As such, Harris figured out what equipment to buy and how to efficiently make shirts, while Blank served as the salesman. Now, in terms of cost, the shirtwaist landed in the middle of the pricing spectrum at about $3 a piece or about 85 bucks in today's money. These were higher-end shirts, though not the absolute highest. They were enough, though, to make Blank and Harris extremely rich and to earn them the nickname the Shirtwaist Kings. They moved from small apartments to lavish brownstones overlooking the Hudson River. Each employed several household servants and arrived to work in chauffeured cars. By 1908, the factory was clearing $1 million a year. But competition was fierce. There were more than 500 blouse makers just on the island of Manhattan. While they're getting the orders from the department stores, there's some small shop half a mile away that's willing to beat them by half. That was David Von Driel who wrote the book Triangle. This is historian Richard Greenwald. Both were speaking to PBS. So it's all about continuous production to get as much cloth turned into a product as possible at the lowest possible price. To do that, they pushed their workforce hard. And they sweated the small stuff because every penny lost was a hit on profits. As such, they kept tight reins on their workers. Hey, 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 hey. Since when do we leave cuttings on the floor, huh? Since the bins are full, as usual. You watch out, Mr. Wise Guy Reuben. That's from a 1979 TV movie about the factory. I mean, sure, it's dramatized, but when comparing it with trial testimony, it holds up. Just as the movie depicted, cutters had to save as much fabric as possible. Sewers were fine for mistakes. So there were two sides to the Triangle Factory. On one hand, says the History Channel, It was a densely packed place. Some 500 people worked there. And the work schedule was punishing. 11 to 12 hours a day, every day. But on the other hand, Getting a job in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory was a pretty desired position because they were working in a much more modern factory environment. This is historian Annalise Orlick in PBS's American Experience. High ceilings, big windows, 
compared to the whole stove heated, dusty, hugely crowded sweatshop rooms, Triangle was a plum. So both things were true. Triangle was better than most factories, and yet it was still pretty awful. Production demands were so great that women routinely sewed straight through their fingers, which not only hurt, but cost them the garment. And no one would want to buy a blood-stained shirt, after all. Accidents and injuries were common since the owners reasoned it was cheaper to simply replace injured workers with new ones than to invest the money to make the factory floor a safe environment. The industry was completely unregulated. The government adopted a laissez-faire attitude, thinking that any restrictions placed on business owners would strangle the economy. To maximize production, Harris laid the workspace out to get as many sewing machines on each floor as possible, while also minimizing conversation among the workers. It proved to work. Blank and Harris had started out on the building's ninth floor, then did so well that they expanded to the eighth, and by 1911, the executives were situated on the 10th floor. Leaving behind bona fide sweatshops placated workers at first, but by 1909, workers were getting a bit peeved. Better conditions did not mean good conditions, and they were tired of watching their bosses go from plain rich to filthy rich, while they themselves were being squeezed tighter by the day. And the workers not only felt undervalued, but they felt trapped. The garment workers had no choice but to toil under the inhumane conditions of the sweatshops because the alternative was starvation for them and their families. To make ends meet, every member of the family had to work. You could find girls as young as 10 years old at the sewing machines on the factory floor. Garment workers were starting to grumble. To the horror of Harrison Blank, that grumbling turned to organizing. The International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union had started in 1900, and some had determined that the only way to get bosses to change was to go on strike. On September 26, 1909, that's just what they did at the Triangle Factory. Strikers had several demands, starting with higher wages. They also wanted their weekly hours capped at 54, limiting them to six nine-hour days per week a big improvement over their current 70-ish hour work weeks. Harrison Blank recognized these as reasonable requests and agreed to them immediately. Just kidding. Actually, what they really did can be summed up in the tale of a Ukrainian-born union organizer named Clara Lemlich. She'd been on a picket line and the owners had sent goons to beat her up and she had six broken ribs, but her spirit was unquenched. Clara was still healing from the vicious beating when she stood to speak in November 1909, a brief but historic speech triggering a general strike throughout the industry known as the Uprising of the 20,000. The Triangle workers had already been on strike for more than a month at this point. Harrison Blank had initially assumed that their workers' strike would be brief, what with people needing paychecks to eat and stuff. Instead, it dragged out one week after another, and finally, with this widespread uprising, they were fortified by literally thousands of other workers. The bosses turned up the heat. In New York at this period was a political organization known as Tammany Hall that had aligned itself with the working class, though it ultimately would go down in history for its impressive corruption. 
Tammany had formed in the late 18th century, peaked after the Civil War in the 19th century, but still had significant power in the early to mid-20th. It was the kind of power that could determine who would grace the ballot for the Democrats. More than that, though, Tammany allies were placed in key positions throughout the city. If you kept Tammany coffers full and or could deliver your neighborhood to the Tammany candidate on election day, you might be rewarded with a city contract or a government job. Regular Joe and Jane voters liked Tammany because, corruption aside, the policies its candidates supported were perceived as more likely to protect workers like them. Plus, it helped that Tammany straight-up wooed poor workers by giving them freebies, as described in this newsreel. Tammany put plenty of showmanship into its election campaigning. This scene, for instance, shows a group of 1897 voters disembarking from a Glen Island sightseeing boat after enjoying a free picnic financed by the Democratic Party. Tammany leaders made sure that plenty of allies were on the workforce, and those who supported the organization had a tendency to climb up the ranks in record time. Tammany worked to ensure that the police chief was on his payroll, too. Harrison Blank knew that Tammany had the power to push through legislation that could hurt their bottom line, so they greased that wheel plenty. That meant when the 1909 strike hit, the two triangle owners were in prime position to bribe the police in hopes of keeping the workers down. Don Wiener again. Harrison Blank were really tough guys, and then they really led the citywide management coalition against the workers, and they hired thugs, and they paid off police. Because of that, picketers were arrested for no reason. Sometimes a hired goon would start a fight, beat a picketer bloody, and yet it'd be the picketer charged with assault. One striker after another wound their way through the court system, often facing judges who were on Tammany's payroll. It had to have been demoralizing as hell, but the strike continued. Like Clara Lemlich, most of the workers just wouldn't stay down. That the boss's hired goons couldn't shut the strikers up was humiliating, of course. But more than that, it was bad PR. Turned out that some people felt it was a bad look to hire men to beat women senseless. Harrison Blank changed hacks and started hiring female sex workers to pummel the strikers instead. Still, public sympathy kept going the strikers' way, drawing support from some high-profile, high-society women, including Anne Tracy Morgan, daughter of the infamously powerful financier J.P. Morgan. Anne used her family's dough and connections to support the suffragette movement, which overlapped with the labor movement, what with women becoming such an integral part of the workforce. That support proved invaluable. It helped raise awareness and money. The union was able to pay the workers at least a fraction of the wages they were forfeiting. It wasn't much, but it kept thousands of workers afloat. The strike finally ended in February 1910 with what was dubbed a Protocol of Peace. Many of the workers' demands were met, such as better pay and shorter hours, but Harrison Blank refused to meet with union leaders, nor would they agree to their factory becoming a union shop. Sometimes the story told is that the owners also refused to make the shop safer. 
But the truth is that safety improvements weren't high up on the list of strikers' demands. In hindsight, such demands should have been paramount, but at the time, no one could fathom what kind of disaster was right around the corner. After the shirtwaist strike ended in early 1910, life got pretty much back to normal, which meant that Harrison Blank could return to fighting what they described as a recurring issue, employee theft, from that TV movie. What'd you steal today, Selma? Nothing. Hey, what about the men, Al? Suppose the men don't have pockets? Every day you treat us like criminals. Move on, move on. Blank and Harris said that workers routinely stole materials from the shop, To combat the supposed problem, they kept one of the exits locked every day at quitting time. This is Driel again, this time speaking in a History Center documentary. The owners kept it locked every day at closing time so that all the workers would have to leave through the other door where their bags were searched by a night watchman. They were worried about people stealing finished blouses or a little bit of lace. Now, later, Blank would acknowledge that even at its worst, theft by employees didn't even dent the company's bottom line. He estimated that the company lost maybe $25 through worker theft. And that's in total. It's not even an annual figure. When you're making a million bucks, $25 represents less than a thousandth of a percent. But Blank and Harris didn't get rich by being understanding bosses. They got rich by being tightwads. So every night at quitting time, the women would grab their coats and purses and line up to be frisked as they all went out a single exit. Now to picture this, you have to understand where the Ash Building was located. It took up a full block situated alongside the Washington Square Park. The streets in this area run northwest to southeast, which makes describing things a little tricky. So instead of referring to things directionally, I'll use the street names that hug the building. Waverly Place, Green Street, Washington Place, and Washington Square East. The Triangle workers had access to stairways and elevators leading to two of those streets, Green Street and Washington Place. The exit the women filed through each night was the one at Green Street. Washington Place, meanwhile, was typically locked. In those days... Because there weren't fire safety laws, uh, the door swung in instead of swinging out. So it's not only locked, but this door would swing inward. This would become important on March 25th, 1911, a Saturday. It seemed a pretty typical day on the whole. Staffing was a tad lighter than it would have been on a weekday, but not by much. Those who opted not to work, usually for religious reasons, Sabbath and all, weren't paid, which for many was too big a hit to survive. So hundreds of people were spread among the three triangle floors of the Ash Building. Hours on Saturdays were a smidgen shorter than the weekdays, so workers were only there for eight hours. The day wrapped up around 4.45 p.m. Right around this time, it seems one of the cutters had done what a lot of cutters did on the factory floor. He smoked. He wasn't supposed to, but cutters were so prized that bosses bent over backwards to keep them happy, even if that meant looking the other way as they smoked next to a pile of thin, gauzy, highly flammable fabric. No one knows which cutter it was or if the fire he started began with a discarded match or a cigarette, but whatever the cause, 
The first flame was seen at 4.40 p.m. on the eighth floor. Fires weren't uncommon at any of these types of businesses, but particularly not at the Triangle Factory. In fact, you could almost count on there being a fire in the slow season, usually after hours when the place was empty. The insurance companies got a bit suspicious that these maybe had been set on purpose to pad the accounts in lean months, but nothing was ever proven. Regardless, this one certainly did not seem intentionally set. We're confident about this because Blank and Harris were not only present and therefore in danger, but they had family members there that day, including a teenage daughter who was just visiting. On top of that, it was a pretty incestuous business. Blank was married to a woman whose cousin was married to Harris, so those two were related, and they employed family members to boot. For example, a manager named Samuel Bernstein was Blank's brother-in-law and the cousin of Harris's wife. He was one of the first to start battling the fire on the eighth floor, where he grabbed a pail of water. One of the few fire prevention moves Harris and Blank had taken was to keep water pails on each floor. The little bucket proved utterly useless. Bernstein grabbed another pail of water and then another. While his intentions were no doubt good and brave, his attempts to battle the blaze in those first few moments likely cost lives because the efforts were totally in vain and the fire spread incredibly quickly. Bernstein ultimately survived, but Max Florin, a 23-year-old man engaged to Blank's cousin, was among the killed. This is Marianne Trashiati, president of the Remember the Triangle Fire Coalition. Workers on the eighth floor called up to the 10th floor, but no one ever reached the ninth floor. The way it worked was the call would go up to the 10th floor switchboard operator, and then she would call down to the ninth floor. Um, But the operator, after she got the call, left the switchboard. And so the call never came to the ninth floor. Now, the reason she thought to call the 10th floor was simple. That's where the bosses were. So people on the eighth floor got early warning because they saw the first flames and they rushed downstairs. The people on the 10th floor got early warning thanks to the phone call and they rushed to the ceiling where it so happened that students from the neighboring New York University Law School saw the fire beginning and rushed to help them. But the 200 or so workers on the ninth floor had no idea what was happening until the floor below them was already engulfed. The workers who had never had a fire drill panicked, rushing for the elevators and the narrow stairwells. Survivors would later testify that doors to one of the two stairwells were locked. The Washington Place door was locked on both the 8th and ninth floors, but workers testified later that someone on the 8th floor had a key and was able to open that door before the place turned to total bedlam. No such luck on the ninth. And if you remember, the doors at the time swung inward, not outward. The crowd was pushing up against the door, and both doors, both exits, were inward-opening doors, which made it almost impossible for the people to get out. In their rush to flee, their panicked bodies jammed against the door. Some were crushed to death before the fire even reached them. There was one working fire escape, so some rushed to use that. But there was a problem. Drill on the History Center. On that wall was hung a little 
18 inch wide flimsy iron fire escape with crisscrossing ladders. But on the ninth floor, by the time the fire got there, uh, when they came out onto this flimsy fire escape, it was crowded with panicked workers. It became overcrowded and tore away from the wall, twisted away. About 25 workers fell from the collapsing fire escape and died at the bottom of the air shaft. With no fire escape and the Washington Place exit locked, the workers ran across the room back to the Green Street exit. But by then, the stairwell leading down was engulfed. Their only hope was to take the elevator for as long as it would hold out, but only a dozen or so could fit per trip. Rose Rosenfeld, the Austrian immigrant I described earlier, the one whose family had more money than most, seemed to have used her knowledge of the upper class to her advantage. According to her son, When the fire broke out, it was bedlam. They couldn't get to the elevators. The doors were locked. Women were jumping out of windows. And she figured they were going to save the bosses on the 10th floor. So she picked up her skirt, put it over her head, ran through the flames, and up to the 10th floor. When there was no one there, the bosses were gone. And she went up to the roof, and there was a fireman and a policeman. They helped her over to the next roof. Some of the workers saw her flee and followed her upstairs. All who did were saved. Those who didn't perished. Some of the workers killed in the Triangle Fire died of smoke inhalation. Some died in the flames. But many died in a desperate attempt to save themselves. They opened the windows and stepped onto the ledge. Outside, thousands of onlookers had gathered on the street below. It had been a beautiful spring Saturday, so Washington Square Park had been crowded with picnickers who first saw smoke, then flames. They stood beneath the open windows and screamed for workers to wait, to hold on, help was coming. And it was. Firefighters arrived within minutes. But even by then, the place was an utter inferno. And worse than that, fire trucks hadn't evolved alongside construction trends. Ten stories doesn't sound like much to us today, but at the time, that was a new-fangled skyscraper, and fire ladders could only reach up to the sixth floor. The workers on the ninth floor could look down and see that they were doomed. So they jumped. William Gunn Shepard was a United Press International reporter who happened to be near the scene when the fire broke out. In a wire story, he wrote, quote, I learned a new sound, a more horrible sound than description can picture. It was the thud of a speeding living body on a stone sidewalk. Thud dead, thud dead, thud dead, thud dead, 62 thud deads. I call them that because the sound and the thought of death came to me each time at the same instant. There was plenty of chance to watch them as they came down. The height was 80 feet, end quote. Shepard described the onlookers begging the women not to jump. Stay there, they screamed. He wrote, I even watched one girl falling, waving her arms, trying to keep her body upright until the very instant she struck the sidewalk. She was trying to balance herself. Then came the thud, 
then a silent, unmoving pile of clothing and twisted, broken limbs. It's from Shepard's reporting that we know of the man who helped two women jump before he helped his lover out the window, followed by himself. It's just so, so sad. This is a relative of Rose Oranger, a 19-year-old woman whose death certificate said she broke her leg and suffered severe internal bleeding after jumping from a window. It's so sad to know that she and, and 145 others like her died that way. So horribly. If you're wondering about life nets, they were indeed a thing in 1911. When firefighters saw the bodies starting to fall from the ash building, they deployed nets. Problem was, nets had only been known to work for people jumping six stories or lower, and even that was under ideal conditions. These women were jumping from nine stories off the ground. Some of them were jumping in pairs, the weight of their bodies ripping through the material like tissue paper. Only one woman survived the initial jump from that height, and while firefighters at first thought she'd be okay, she died within hours of internal bleeding. After just minutes, firefighters saw the nets as futile and packed them away, worried that their presence might falsely suggest to some in the windows above that they stood a chance if they jumped. Amazingly, the fire lasted less than half an hour. Even with inadequate hoses, firefighters managed to get the blaze under control pretty quickly, but not before 146 people died, 123 of them women, 23 men. The youngest victims were 14 years old. The 62 who died on the sidewalks were somewhat identifiable. The remaining victims, not so much. In hopes of identifying the dead, the charred remains of dozens were lined up on a pier along the East River. Family members filed by looking for something, anything that would tell them, yes, this is my daughter, my mother, my sister, my son. One girl recognized her mother's corpse by the hair on her head that hadn't burned away. The girl had styled her mother that day. And while she couldn't make out the features of the corpse's face, she knew who it was by the braid in her hair. From a documentary, The ghastly process took three full days. Seven bodies were so badly burned, they could not be identified. And on April 5th, 1911, a mass funeral was held for the unknown victims. That same day, a massive protest march also took place, winding its way down Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. An estimated 350,000 people attended. Their grief and horror had quickly turned to outrage. From a Centennial newscast. This fire really shook people up. You know, the city was so guilt-stricken that maybe we were somehow responsible. The district attorney waited a bit before assigning blame. It seemed he maybe hoped that the news would fade from the headlines, as had been the case with other smaller-scale fires in the industry. No such luck. He filed manslaughter charges against Triangle's owners, Harris and Blank. The case hinged on whether Harris and Blank had ordered the Washington Place door locked to thwart theft. Several surviving workers testified that that indeed had been the standard practice, but Blank and Harris weren't your average defendants. They did what all rich people did in those days. If they were in trouble, they hired Max Stoyer, the greatest lawyer in New York. 
He put on a brilliant defense. His uh, cross-examination of the key witness is still taught in some law schools. And the owners were acquitted. And eventually, uh, several years later, the, a few of the families who'd held in settled for $75 each. As Blank and Harris left the courthouse following their acquittal, a brother of one of the fire's victims accosted them, screaming that they were murderers. He was so worked up, he collapsed on the street and was hospitalized. He wasn't alone in his outrage. Those immersed in the labor movement were determined to make sure the deaths at least led to change. And so they pushed. They protested. Tammany Hall, which had just a year earlier been helping to keep the workers down, had seen some turnover in leadership. And with that, the organization seemed to have a change of heart. An investigating commission, co-chaired by Tammany politician Al Smith, who would later become New York governor and the Democratic candidate for president in 1928, conducted one of the most extensive investigations in state history. More than 200 witnesses testified, creating some 3,500 pages of transcripts. The results of their investigation were a damning indictment of the entire manufacturing industry of New York. It was found that business owners routinely abused their workforce in the name of profit and that safety was almost never a consideration. The New York legislature passed dozens of new workplace safety laws that would, in turn, serve as models for laws in other states and eventually the federal government. And these laws went beyond fire safety. Regulations were adopted requiring better eating and bathroom facilities, restricting the number of hours women and children could legally work. Even the federal minimum wage, which wasn't adopted until 1938, can be tied directly to the Triangle Fire. That's because Francis Perkins, who was Labor Secretary under President Franklin D. Roosevelt in the 1930s, had herself witnessed the fire in person. Those memories led her to support unemployment insurance, collective bargaining, and a minimum living wage. To research this story, I read David Von Driel's book, Triangle. I also watched several documentaries, including PBS's American Experience focused on the fire. The newspaper accounts and photographs of the time are absolutely gut-wrenching and yet feel like required reading. There's a lot we take for granted today that we only have because others died. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs>